You're listening to Your Financial Compass with Scott Vallon. These shows are designed to provide information to both pre- and post-retirees so you can make well-informed decisions about your financial future. Our financial compass process goes beyond traditional holistic planning. We care as much about you and your lifestyle as we do about your plan. At the Bullman Wealth Group, we want to help you define what matters most and inspire you to go and do it. Your host is Bullman Wealth Group financial advisor, Scott Vallon, who for more than a decade has made a difference in his clients' lives by providing financial leadership. Hello there, this is Scott Vaughn with the Your Financial Compass podcast, and I'm a financial advisor with the Bowman Wealth Group in Roseville, California. If you've been listening to these podcasts, you know that every show we want to tackle a different topic that we find important in uh, the financial planning realm. Um, Last time we talked about RMDs, and today we are going to talk about a very what I think is a misunderstood topic, which is legacy and estate planning. And, and you know, what exactly is a trust? So we're going to do a deep dive here in a few minutes. But before I get started, if anything you hear today uh, prompts you to want, you know, to ask us more questions or, or discuss further, you can always reach us at ask at bullmanwealth.com. So that's ask at B-U-L-M-A-N wealth.com. So, Joining me today, instead of me going on and on about trusts, I thought, why don't I bring in someone who actually does these for a living? And joining us is one of our estate planning partners. Um, His name is Mike Bennett. He's been doing this for almost two decades. So first off, Mike, thank you for being here today. Oh, thank you for having me. So Mike, I've got a series of questions I want to walk through with you today. Because from our vantage point as a financial advisor, estate planning is, is a very misunderstood topic, I feel like. I think sometimes people forget to do it or are scared to do it, all these different things. Obviously, you can speak to that, but we feel like it is a very huge part of our financial planning process. And I guess there's a million different places we could start, but I will start off. I get it all the time, and we're recording this here in California. I know each state has different rules for the most part, but a lot of times when we bring it up to somebody, we'll say, hey, you know, do you have a trust? And they'll say, no, I have a will. So why don't we start there, Mike? Why don't you kind of break down uh, what's, what's the difference or the main differences between a trust and a will? Wow. Well, thanks, Scott. Yeah, the, that's, uh, we can probably do the 30, 30 <laughs> minutes just on this right. uh, one question. But when I think of estate planning, uh, I, the one word that comes to mind is control. And so when you have a will versus a trust, a will does give you some level of control. Um, and a will-based estate plan, which might include a power of attorney, healthcare directive, it does give you some level of control. But a, a trust-based estate plan gives you a lot more control uh, than what a will-based estate plan you know, can potentially offer. Uh, specifically, things like avoiding probate. Uh, probate, no matter where you are, is just a legal transfer of assets when somebody dies. And probate is a very public, a very time-consuming in most states, um, and a, a very expensive in California, but also in many other states, uh, prospect of going through. And one of the ways that you avoid probate is doing a trust. And so that, uh, the will versus trust, that's the probate avoidance is what people focus on the most, but control is what I like to focus on as well. Okay. So let's let's dive into that for a minute, because generally when we bring up trusts, especially here in California, probate comes up. 
Dive a little bit deeper into that. What is probate? Why would someone want to avoid probate? So uh, from a business perspective, I love probates. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, my master bathroom was built based on a probate that I did. And, and I'm not kidding uh, about that. In California, for a million-dollar gross estate, uh, and I'm intentionally saying gross and not net. And that includes the property, correct? Yes. Yeah. And so, yeah, that includes, a, like if you have a million-dollar house with a $500,000 mortgage, for calculating probate fees in California, the million-dollar number is what matters. That's a $23,000 probate uh, in California. And for anything above that million dollars, it's an additional 1%. So if it's $3 million, now you're looking at $43,000. Um, it just, it's absurd on, on how much uh, attorneys can charge to do probates in, in California. Mm-hmm. And there's the cost aspect, but then there's the time aspect. So let's, let's kind of, a hypothetical, some here in California, someone passes away and they don't have a trust and you know, say they have two children and they're left having to fend with this. You mentioned the cost of it, but there's a time cost as well. What does that look like? Uh, in this program? It, it's significant depending on the county. So I, I have a, a an attorney friend that earlier this week filed for probate in Sacramento County. So, I mean, not the largest county in California by any stretch, but not the smallest one either. Uh, they're hearing just to get somebody appointed uh, for the probate is in mid-May. And we're in, we're in early December yeah. right now. Wow. Okay. And so over five months just to get somebody appointed. So just based on the other statutory timeframes, they will not close that probate in 2023. They are going to be limited to closing that probate sometime in probably first quarter or second quarter of 2024. In other smaller counties, it can be a little bit sooner. But I mean, at a minimum, if things go perfectly, which they never do, mm-hmm. uh, nine months. Wow. Okay. So it's a way, in a basic sense, it's a way of if something happens to you, it's a, I don't want to say seamless, but it makes it a, a smoother process for your loved one's beneficiaries, a trust as a way by avoiding probate just makes it more of a smooth transition to, to them. Absolutely. Uh, that's a smooth transition. It's a good final gift uh, to give to them. When we generally bring up trusts, a lot of times, not in every instance, but a lot of times people will say, you know what, I, I know I need one, but I've been putting it off. It happens a lot. And to me, as an advisor, it almost seems like there's a maybe like a fear surrounding it or a misunderstanding. I guess, where do you think some of that, and I could be totally wrong, but just from my experience when we're having these discussions with people, if you've also seen that after nearly two decades, why do you think there's that maybe hesitation, misunderstanding, fear, what have you? Well, there's several things, and I think you said some of the right words there. Uh, there's fear. It's, that's definitely part of it. Also, nobody likes to talk about these things. Nobody mm. enjoys it. It's not fun to talk about who's going to get your minor kids if, mm. uh, if you die. Uh, it's not fun to talk about who's going to pull the plug on you. Right. Um, well, maybe it is. I don't know. But yeah. <laughs> well, it's not yeah. good Thanksgiving yeah. uh, dinner topic. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and there, there's just a procrastination. People know that mm. they need to do it, but it gets pushed to the back burner. There's also, I think on some level, there's a, a cost. Uh, the, sure. the cost of doing it financially is, so I mean, there's the emotional toll of it, but there's the financial cost on it as well. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, 
to go see a local estate planning attorney and to go do that. Yeah, there's some people who need that level of of expertise and comfort um, of doing those things, but there's a high, high cost for doing so and spilling your guts to some unknown person that you've never met before that's sitting there showing up in a suit. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's just not that much fun to do. And so I think it inevitably gets pushed to the back burner. But they also don't want to necessarily go and do it on their own, like a legal Zoom. Uh, there are some good documents out there for those types of things, but you know, most clients don't know what they don't know. Mm-hmm. And so they want someone to be able to help them through the process at least a little bit. Sure. And I'm glad you brought up the legal zoo thing because sometimes, as you've kind of referenced, trust can be costly to get it done right. But sometimes we'll talk to folks, well, I, I did it online, or I saw legal zoom, or so-and-so has this package for $400. To me, not being a state planning attorney, but being an advisor and dealing with these in our clients' planning, it scares me a little bit when someone comes in, hey, I did mine for $400. I'm not sure if it's actually a trust or not. From your vantage point, when you see these bargain basement costs for them, is should that be a red flag when someone sees it dramatically cheaper than what is the norm? I mean, it's you don't want to say that they're all a red flag. I mean, there, there could be good deals out there, but uh, and more often than not, you're going to get what you pay for. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in those types of things, it's going to be plug and play. Uh, there is no customization that's going to be done on something like that. You know, your minor kids might be getting everything when they turn 18, uh, which could be a disaster um, if something happens. Uh, Maybe you're in a position where they don't actually put the assets into the trust or have things working together with your trust, which can be a disaster. So it's, I mean, buyer beware. You Mm -hmm. you can't call them all red flags, uh, but at the same time, I mean, it's, you know, you're not going to get a whole lot of hand-holding at 400 bucks. Okay. So you referenced the kids, minor kids. So I'm 42. I have two small kids, or eight and six. My the way I view a trust and set it up for me is different than you know. Say we helped a client in their late 60s set it up. You know, a couple of weeks ago, much older kids. But let's start from someone in a younger perspective. You're married. You have kids. You own a house. Why is that important to have it? Let's say as a as a young or a parent of young children. Where does the trust come into play where it could be valuable for having those young kids? So it goes back to a word that I said early, uh, earlier, which is control. Uh, when you do a full-blown trust-based estate plan, you're basically solving five major questions. Who's getting it? How are they getting it? Who makes financial decisions if you can't? Who makes healthcare decisions if mm. you can't? And who's the guardian of any minor kids? And that last one is huge. Uh, you, can, you can name a guardian in a will. That's great. Uh, go mm-hmm. ahead and do that. At least you've got that part covered. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, I, and you know, Scott, you and I were in fairly similar circumstances. I'm 43 and I have a 12 year old and a 10 year old. Mm-hmm. And so, on my own estate plan, my kids are equal shares. Uh, we have some charitable stuff, but then for the most part, our kids are equal shares. But they get one third at 25, one third at 30, one third at 35. Okay. If they got everything at 18. <laughs> <laughs> they would just, it would be a fun three months sure, yeah. uh, for them and all their friends. Yeah. But, you know, we want to make sure we spaced it out to have that control mm-hmm. uh, because we don't want to screw our kids up either. And the part I left out, and this is any decent estate plan will have this, but there's also payments for them for health care, for education, uh, for support. Mm-hmm. So those are the types of things that are very, very easy to build into a plan. But man, for I, I hear it all the time. 
oh, well, I'm just a, a young starting out couple. Like, I, I don't need a trust. I don't have any money. Well, you probably have life insurance. Or if you don't, you need it yeah. because you got small kids. Sure. Well, the beneficiary of my life insurance is my trust because I want that money paying out to my kids over time and not when they turn 18 if something, heaven forbid, were to happen to my wife and I. Sure. Okay. Another thing that we hear when we bring it up to folks is, well, gosh, you know, I have an ex-husband. I have, you know, cousins. I, there's a fear in some instances of people, for lack of a better phrase, coming out of the woodwork to make claims on, well, you know, we were married 30 years ago and I'm entitled to X amount. How does it, without getting too far into just hypothetical examples, how does a trust help kind of, you know, legally insulate some of the riffraff? Yeah, and so in addition, it all, all goes back to control. You'll probably be shocked to hear me say that. That's no, but um, not only can you dictate who gets things in your document, but you can specifically say who doesn't get things in there. And so there's certain in in several states, there's certain things where if you don't like if you don't mention your kid and you didn't want them to get it, well, you need to specifically mention that they're out. And so for an ex-husband, and I do see this quite a bit where I do see like an ex-husband or, you know, ex-whatever, where you say, I specifically and with full knowledge have chosen not to provide for this person. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be really hard pressed for them to come out and say, oh, they meant to provide something for me if it specifically says that in the documents. We've referenced a little, you know, uh, about the financial implications, you know, avoiding the cost of probate, the timing of it, assets passing on to children. You also referenced the healthcare aspect. Just to, let's kind of dig deeper yeah. into that. Of you know, talk about fun conversations. Yeah, there's a lot of unique questions and scenarios that are played out when we're filling these out. So why, you know, at a very basic level, what kind of things? How does it help the healthcare aspect in regards to having a trust set? So I mean, ultimately, you want to have your um, you want to have your wishes enforced, and so. The number one, it comes in not only your particular healthcare decisions, but who you've named as your healthcare agents. I probably say this too often, but I, you know, for me personally, I'm a pull the plug type guy. I don't have my mother listed on my advanced healthcare directive because she'll never do it. And I okay. love her for that. Yeah. Uh, but I also don't have my father-in-law either because he'll put a pill over my head if I give him that opportunity. <laughs> right. and, uh, and, and he loves it that I use that example. But okay. it's, so there's that aspect of who you're going to name. Ultimately, you want someone who can make a difficult emotional decision at what's obviously a difficult and emotional time and who's ultimately going to carry out your wishes. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, I use the mother and my father-in-law example just to kind of break the ice a little bit with mm-hmm. people. But that's, uh, it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just letting them know what you want to have happen. Are you a pull the plug type person? Do you want to donate your organs? Mm-hmm. You know, those types of things. I, on, on some level, I tell people, look, just put people in place that you trust and they'll make the right call for you. Right. Uh, other people want to dig deeper than that. And so they can go into organ donation, what they want to do for autopsy. What do they want to do for uh, cremation versus burial? All of those different types of things. You can go into it. But I, I think just letting your loved ones know and picking the right people is the key part there. Sure. And in regards to picking the right people, let's. we already talked about kind of the young family. Now we flip, the, turn the tables maybe to an older couple who has adult children. In some instances, they want... Yeah, hey, I want my daughter to do it. She's the only one we trust to make the right decision. But what if someone had two kids that they trust them both equally? Could they have dual health care trustees, dual financial trustees? Yes, they can. Uh, 
then what I often say is the upside of having two of them do it together is they both have to agree on things. Okay. Uh, and the downside is they both have to agree on things. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you knew okay. exactly where I was going with that. And you know, every family is different. I, I've been doing this for almost 20 years and I've never met a normal family yeah. and there's no such thing. And, and so, you know, I try to discourage that, but at the same time, I don't want to say, I don't want to use the word normal, but in most mm-hmm. families, if you pick one and then the other, if they're that close, they're going to be working together anyway sure. on things. And, and it's going to be much easier for them to work together if it's one and then the other. Mm-hmm. Um, with two kids, a lot of times I see you got one in charge financially with the other as a backup, and then they reverse the order on healthcare, for instance. Okay. Um, you know, it's not a badge of honor to be named on these things. It's a right. responsibility. Right. And so trying to weigh those things and weigh their feelings and those types of things, okay, that's, I mean, that's going to be part of it. I don't want to be naive about it, but you know, you got to pick the right people. Mm-hmm. And, and ultimately they're going to talk generally. Sure. In rare instances, I'm sure maybe someone has two kids and they don't want either one of them to be <laughs> financial trustee, healthcare trustee. You can also go outside of the family, correct? To oh, absolutely. Someone? Absolutely. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a family member. I, I mean, it, it can be a distant relative, or I say distant, cousin, uncle, okay. you know, whatever it might be. It can be a friend. Uh, there's also professional trustees out there where there's people who would literally act as their job is to be a, a professional trustee. Mm-hmm. Um, the upside of one of those professional trustees that that's literally all they do for a living is they're going to go exactly by what the terms of your ah. trust state. Okay. There is going to be no wavering there. and But the downside is they're going to go exactly by the yeah. terms of that trust because they don't have that personal relationship mm-hmm. with um, – you know, with the kids or those types of things. So that can be, it can be both a benefit and a detriment. I mean, just like anything else. Sure. Sure. Okay. So now say someone has a trust. I get this question. I have one, but I set it up 14 years ago. I've never opened the document since there's ancient dust on it from your vantage point as an estate planner, how often realistically how often should, if you have a trust, how often should you review it? I, I hate that question, which means it's a great question. <laughs> yeah. um, I like to say sometimes that if you or any beneficiary have had a significant change in health or wealth, it's time to do that. Mm. Uh, it's time to update it or time to look at it at least. And then most people say, okay, what, what on earth does that mean? Three to five years. Okay. Three to five years is, is a good general number. And the best case scenario is, oh yeah, it's fine. Most common changes I see are changes to guardians. Uh, oh. especially this time of year where you know, in early December, you, you just had a Thanksgiving dinner. You didn't like how things <laughs> right. went. You got Christmas right around the corner. Right. You're not sure how things are going to go right. there. So a lot of changes around this time of year related to guardians. Okay. Um, but the, And then changing your trustees. Like I, I can't tell you how often I see, oh, yeah, we didn't even talk to that person anymore. Mm-hmm. And they're named in our documents. Oh, well, <laughs> you might want to change something there. Sure. Speaking of changes, sometimes when – you know, we're talking with folks to get one established. They feel like once it's set, the ship sails and you have to adhere to however you set the trust up in terms of who you name and all those sorts of things. As you've already referenced, that's not the case. So how easy, relatively speaking, how easy is it to go in and make a change? You bought a new house or maybe, you know, God forbid someone passed away, can't be a part of it. Is it relatively easy to make changes to an established trust? Yes, uh, short answer, yes. Okay. I mean, it's as long as you, um, if it's a married couple, as long as they have the mental capacity mm-hmm. and the willingness, 
that's all they need. You know, if they're if one spouse has passed away, then it, it can be a little bit more difficult depending on the terms of the trust. But it may be very easy as well for the surviving mm-hmm. spouse. Um, but the the thing I like to stress is that it's not like the kids can come in and change things. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like to, uh, these things are generally set in sand as opposed to set in stone. Mm, okay, we'll hear this a lot, and in, in I want you to kind of speak to this. I don't know if it's a misconception or just you know, maybe I've heard it wrong. Are there say someone has various investments or assets? Is there a tax advantage to having maybe the trust own a an IRA, for example, as opposed or having the trust be the beneficiary of it, as opposed to having your wife or your children or what have you? Well, that's a, that's a complicated question. Yeah. There, it's uh, so for non-retirement accounts. So your um, you know, your typical bank account, your typical brokerage account uh, that's not in an IRA or four hundred one k. There's generally not much of a tax. It's it's pretty neutral, frankly. When it comes to retirement accounts, that's a whole nother can of worms. Uh, the for an IRA. Naming your spouse as the primary beneficiary, there, there's benefits to doing that over, if you name the trust, it'd actually be a disadvantage if you did okay. that. Uh, a spouse has unlimited rollover type benefits when it comes to an IRA. Uh, when you name the trust, you do have to be careful though. Uh, you need to make sure that the appropriate language is in there so we're not accelerating any of the tax implications on something like that. Uh, it used to be up until about three years ago that you could, uh, you know, that if I inherited an IRA from my parents, that I could stretch it out over my own life expectancy. And now with the SECURE Act, I'm limited to 10 years uh, okay. on something like that. Yeah. Here in California, it's become the new thing to, we're moving, we're heading out. A lot of the people we talk with are, have intentions of leaving, not everybody. So say you get a, a trust started in California or any other state, and then you move. Say you get one set up in California and move to, you know, Nevada. Do you have to get a new trust? Is the trust still in effect based off how you drew it up? How does it change if someone moves out of state? Um so I'll give you the annoying answer on whether or not you need to change it. And that's always, it depends. Yeah. Uh, I hate that answer, but there I go. It really depends on the terms of the trust. You always want to have it looked at, but the, if the terms of the trust say equal shares to your kids, I don't care what state you're in. Equal shares to your kids is equal shares to your kids. Sure. Um, there are some state specific things um, between all the states that are, are going to be a little bit different, but they're not generally, they're not so different that it necessitates a change okay. on the trust. When it comes to like financial power of attorney and healthcare power of attorney, those are very, very state-specific forms. And it's not that your California documents wouldn't be valid in Nevada, but if you're ever in a position where they're looking at your healthcare directive, you're not in a good spot right there. Mm-hmm. And if all of a sudden they're looking at your California one in Nevada and they're saying, oh my God, like I don't even know if this is valid, you, you don't want to have that. Mm-hmm. So I'm a big advocate for um, changing the powers of attorney, at least, so they're very, very state-specific. Okay. And then having somebody take a look at it. Um, but it's, you know, don't get scared into doing a brand new trust just because it's a different state. Sure. For the most part, I mean, your trust name, your trust date, all that stuff's going to stay the same. Um, and there might be some little minor differences here and there, but for the most part, I, I think it's overblown. Okay, okay. Now we've spent... 20 plus minutes talking about why you need a trust, who needs a trust, the situations. Let's take a, you know, flip the coin for a second. Who might not need a trust? What might be some situations where it wouldn't be wow. necessary? No, I, I like that. Um, so you got your typical 18 to 21 year old. Uh, they're an adult. 
they may just need a financial power of attorney and advanced healthcare directive. So if mm-hmm. they're away at college uh, and something happens, I, I went to UC Santa Barbara. Uh, I had an appendectomy my junior year there. And my parents, you know, one of my friends called my parents and was just like, oh, Mike's in the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> and and they and they call down to the hospital. They won't give them any information because I'm over the age of eighteen. Ah, okay. If I had had a, you know, the, the the proper documents in place, my parents would have been able to get information. And so that's a good one that I hear parents of you know college age kids doing quite a bit. If you have an, an older person who doesn't own a home, let's say a, an older person who has two adult kids who are well adjusted human beings. Okay. Uh, the, you know, so you're not looking to limit it like I'm doing for my minor kids. Something like that. They may just name beneficiary designations on everything and do a power of attorney if they become incapacitated uh, in the event they become incapacitated. Do a healthcare directive so they've got that stuff in place, but they may not even need a will and, or a mm, trust in okay. that case because everything just passes to their beneficiaries by beneficiary designation. So they put beneficiaries on their bank account, their investment account, their retirement accounts. It all just passes that way. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think, you know, we could probably do several podcasts on it, but I want to keep it. Lean and mean, you know, hopefully most of the FAQs were answered. But so, you know, we've covered a a decent amount of ground, but I'm sure there's several things we haven't touched on. Hopefully not. But what if if there's anything that we haven't covered, maybe some misconceptions from, you know, nearly two decades of doing this. What are some maybe other misconceptions about trust that are worth mentioning? That it's going to complicate your life significantly. You know, it's a little bit of complication, but you don't have additional tax filings to do. Mm. Um, it, it is a, a little bit of a pain to initially put the assets into the trust or name your beneficiaries. Right. But after that, it's very little maintenance. So that part of it is a misconception that you only need a trust if you're rich. Well, mm. I mean, what does that even mean, rich? <laughs> I, I, I mean, it's, right. you know, that that's... It's really, you know, those types of things I think are very, very common. And then uh, I think another one is if they do them, that it's that they need to go into each and every little detail. I think the whole process kind of overwhelms people. Right. No, I I mean, I I said at the beginning, but there's really five major decisions you have. Who's getting it? Which are the beneficiaries? How are they getting it? Uh, I refer to that as a method of distribution. Who's going to make financial decisions? That's the trustee on the trust, the power of attorney on the power of attorney or the executor on the will. Who's going to make healthcare decisions if you can't? And who's the guardian of any minor kids? Mm-hmm. Those five things are really all that you're answering. It's not as exhausting of a process as you might think it would be. Got it. Okay. Well, we are nearing the 30-minute mark. Well, about 27 minutes. I always want to keep these under 30. I appreciate the time today, Mike. Um, I'm, I'm sure we'll probably do more trust-related podcasts in the future. As I said earlier at the beginning of, of this episode, if anything you heard today prompts a question, you want to discuss it further, you can reach us at ask at bullmanwealth.com. Or if you want to be a part of, you know, getting all of our newsletters, if you want to, you know, get notified of new podcasts, just shoot us an email, let us know. But um, we can certainly get into further details about all this. But Mike, thank you for your time. We're going to cut it there. We now have, speaking of all the legal things, we have our legal disclosure, which you're going to hear here in a second. But folks, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. This show's content is for information purposes only. It is not intended to provide any tax or legal advice or provide the basis for any financial decisions, nor is it intended to be a projection of current or future performance or an indication of future results. Purchases are subject to suitability. This requires a review of an investor's objective, risk tolerance, and time horizons. Investing always involves risk and possible loss of capital. Opinions expressed are solely those of Bullman Wealth Group and our editorial staff. 
The information contained in this material has been derived from sources believed to be reliable, but it is not guaranteed accuracy and completeness and does not purport to be a complete analysis of the materials discussed. Any statements of opinions expressed should in no way be construed or interpreted as a solicitation to sell or offer to sell advisory services to any residents of any state other than the states where otherwise legally permitted. Advisory services are offered through Chris Bowman, Inc., DBA, Bowman Wealth Group, and Brookstone Wealth Advisors, registered investment advisors. Insurance products are offered and sold through Chris Bowman, Inc., DBA, BWG Insurance Agency.